You're listening to Seamside, where we explore the inner work of textiles. I'm your host, Zachary Duguid Foster, and today I want us to settle in and get a little uncomfortable together. How's that sound? I say uncomfortable because we're going to talk about some things that most folks say, well, you don't talk about in public, right? We're going to talk about money. How's that sound? Religion, uh huh, and race. So that's a lot. And so I'm going to ask you to trust me as we go through this silver dollar quilt together. I think I'll start with this quote by Mark Nepo, who wrote The Book of Awakening, which I highly recommend to anybody who's looking for a daily meditative reader. In one of the entries in The Book of Awakening, Nepo asks, so where do we begin? And he goes on to liken our search for wisdom to how the Inuits fashion their bait while fishing. Nepo says, we arrive at our understanding by, quote, not an intellectual debate or esoteric study, but by risking something of ourselves, by placing something troublesome and sweet out in the open, by offering something essential from our hunger and coding it with our vulnerability. We call the greater truth into the open with the smaller. So that's what I plan to do here for the next few minutes. I'm going to put something out there, troublesome and sweet. I'm going to code it with my vulnerability in the hopes that some greater truth will be fished out by the small truth that I have to share here. And that small truth starts with this story. I would have never considered us well off growing up. When I think of supper time as a kid, it was either hamburger helper or macaroni and cheese with tuna fish mixed in, because, you know, you, you got to have all the food groups. I remember being kind of jealous of my friend, Hal, who lived down the street, because his parents bought him the good juice, the juicy juice, if y'all remember that. Growing up, when it was time for a new school year, we'd make an annual trip to Roses to buy a pair of shoes and a new set of clothes for the first day of school. And if you didn't grow up around the Roses, kind of like a Walmart, Not exactly haute couture, you know what I mean? When I looked up and down the road from my childhood home, everyone around us seemed to have bigger houses and nicer cars and better clothes. That's just the way it was, you know? Growing up, I would have definitely never said that we were privileged. But we did have a house. Each of my parents had their own car. Wasn't new, but it ran. And each of them had two degrees apiece. So all in all, we weren't doing so bad. Y'all know my last name is Foster. And that's just one of many of a long line of Anglo-Saxon surnames in my family tree. We've got Langstons and Duguids and Burtons, all kinds really. In fact, it's the Langston branch and the Duguid branch that I really want to spend a few minutes on today. Because I got these two rings. Maybe you've seen them on social media or something. I wear them almost every day. Some days I forget. One comes from my great-granddaddy Langston. The other comes from my great-grandmama Duguid. And so by the end of this conversation, you're going to have a better idea of what I think about every morning when I reach for the nightstand and put on these two rings. Now, it probably comes as no surprise to you that I am the family historian for my family. There's a few others who are really interested, but I'm the one pulling it all together. And I find so much of what I'm learning fascinating. It's truly informing the way I move through the world and it's giving shape to my artistic practice. 
Now, when folks start getting into genealogy, you know, one of the first things they like to do is rattle off all the famous people they're related to. And I'm going to tell you some of them, and I got a point for telling you them, and it's, it's not bragging. But in my family tree, we got names like Daniel Boone, Frank and Jesse James, Patrick Henry. I mean, some real American archetypes, right? Rugged, individualist, white. Of course, most folks in my family tree aren't so famous. The first Foster arrived on a ship in 1635. That ship was called Safety of all names. My family is so thoroughly American, if you will, that the last immigrant in my direct line was my fourth great-grandmother, Sarah Murphy, who came on a ship with her Gaelic-speaking parents from Ireland in 1776. Can you imagine pulling up to the shores of this country in 1776? I tell you all that to say that as someone whose family goes back generations in this country, I feel uniquely qualified to speak to the American experience, at least a slice of it. I mean, when you open an American history textbook, anything that's happened in the last 400 years, my family's been back there in the background somewhere. So let's talk about my family tree. Let's talk about American history and why I even bothered to make a quilt about it. We're going to circle back for just a moment to my great-grandmother, Sarah Murphy. On her tombstone, there's a four-line poem written down at the bottom. I've seen it. It's down in South Carolina. I went to check it out one day. And the funny thing is, is I'm sure when Sarah Murphy was buried, that little family burial plot was probably in the corner of a field somewhere out in the open. But by the time I got to it, a couple hundred years later, trees had grown up all around it. It was thick in the middle of the woods. Someone had to guide me back there. I'd never found it on my own. There's a knee-high wall that surrounds all the tombstones back in the woods. If you're familiar with my quilt called Like Family, that's an imagined version of this very real burial ground. But on Sarah Murphy's tombstone, there's this poem, and it goes like this. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord, for they rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. That inscription sticks with me. It's right in the sense that our works do follow us, right? We have a certain legacy that often stays behind long after we're gone in the memory of our loved ones. But those legacies don't always follow us. Sometimes they get forgotten, especially the unpleasant ones, the ones families don't want to talk about. They get conveniently pushed back farther and farther into the darkest corners of our generational attics. The piece I'm talking to y'all about today is a part of a larger body of work I'm calling Southern White Amnesia, which is a body of work exploring the stories that Southern white families tell about their own family histories and which ones we don't tell. And when I think of amnesia here in this case, I'm really thinking about it on the level of the generation. If you were to go back 90 years in my family, so not even a full century, just 90 years, the fact that my family had made wealth off the enslavement of other people would have been common knowledge. Back then, in the 1930s, the children of slave owners were still alive. So what I'm trying to do here with this quilt, specifically, and Southern White Amnesia in general, is to bring the past just a little bit closer to the present. Not in some kind of artificial way, but in the way that William Faulkner was talking about 
when he said the past isn't dead, it's not even past. Here in the present day, we live in the thick of history. And that can make it hard to see sometimes what exactly is happening, what's going on all around us. For most of my life, I had a really tough time understanding privilege. But as I started researching my own family, something became crystal clear. The two branches of my family tree, the paternal line and the maternal line, even though they both have been in this country for centuries, had two very different experiences. On my dad's line, you have a long row of subsistence farmers. Barely had enough money to get it registered on the census, if it even got registered at all. Conversely, on my mom's side of the family, however, where all the enslaving happened, they were wealthier in ways that my dad's folks could never even imagine. And it's on my mom's side that I get these two rings, the one from the Langstons and the one from the Dugans. So with all that in mind, let's take a look at this quilt. This quilt is called Silver Dollar. It's about a yard by yard, 36 inches by 36 inches, or about a meter by a meter. It's a whole cloth quilt. The foundation fabric is a blue rough woven piece, and it has a band of pink woven horizontally through it that inspired some color choices later on. It's backed in some repurposed golden upholstery. And my plan was originally to bind it on all four sides, but something felt too neat about that. So you'll see it's just bound on the left and the right, allowing for some real vertical movement on the top and the bottom edges. Probably the first thing you'd notice is the text scrawled across the top half of the quilt. The letters are made out of strips of couch fabric stitched down in capital letters. It says, I got this silver dollar from my granddad. That's true. I did. So I'm borrowing this silver dollar from him to help tell this story. That silver dollar is stitched in the upper right-hand corner of this quilt. It is now a permanent piece of this quilt, held down by a bunch of pink thread. After you read the headline, as we might call it, got this silver dollar from my granddad, your eyes might wander down to the bottom right-hand corner where it says, or, and here's an alternate title for you, how the wealth of my ancestors helped me get into college. All right. Okay, so that's where we're going with it. This is the point of this conversation. How the inherited wealth of my ancestors helped me get into college. Most of the real estate on this quilt is taken up with what's called a fan view of family history. Most of you will be familiar with the idea of a family tree. The only problem with representing your ancestors that way is that graphically it gets sprawling really, really fast. So what I like about the fan view is it keeps all the family close together, nice and compact, nice and tight, perfect for a little square quilt. Inside of the fan, it's been divided into cells or little blocks. Each block has the name of a person in my family, a direct ancestor. The fan starts in the bottom left-hand corner with a little block that just says me stitched into it. The next generation out just says dad and mom. Beyond that, each of the blocks are filled with initials because what we're talking about here are real people and real lives and real historical occurrences. Each of the blocks of the fan is divided either by some elaborate crazy quilt type embroidery or some rickrack 
Because about halfway through, I got really excited about Rick Rat. And I like this crazy quilt connection because the generations I'm most interested in talking about with this quilt, the generation that was living in the last quarter of the 1800s was when crazy quilts were having their heyday. So here we go. In between the third and fourth generations that you see on this quilt, there's a green ribbon, pale mint green ribbon. It arcs its way through the fan in kind of a dividing line. If you've ever been to the Southwest, and you've seen how layers of the earth, you can see millions of years in just one look. Layers of earth compacted, so you see these striations of different geological epochs. This is a striation, this ribbon. And it points to a time and period where things were different before and after. On this green ribbon, I've stitched down the words, slave owners forced to emancipate. And all of us that live on this side of the green ribbon, we grew up in the time after emancipation. All the ancestors, though, that lived on the far side of the green ribbon grew up in slavery times. What's been interesting for me, though, is seeing my own proximity to emancipation. Sometimes you hear folks say, but that was so long ago. And in a sense, sure. But y'all, my grandma's grandpa, grew up with enslaved folks at his house. I love my grandma. I knew her well. She loved her grandpa and knew him well. That's not that far back. I got family members alive and breathing today that bear the name of different enslavers in my family. That's how close we are. When you think of this time in history, not in terms of numbers, but in terms of relationships and how one person connects to another, Slavery days, emancipation, that was just the blink of an eye. The fan view of this family tree is color-coded because I wanted to show you two things at the same time. So you'll notice that blocks may be pink or they may be blue. Pink denotes any relative that was engaged in slavery. Blue denotes those who are able to access higher education. And that's the thing that's so interesting to me about the pink and the blue in this quilt is how they go hand in hand. There's no blue on my father's side of the quilt. When he first went to school back in the late 60s, he was first-generation college student. But when you cross the line and go over to my mom's side of the quilt, the blue goes way back, generations beyond what this quilt can capture. And one thing that makes me a little uncomfortable about all this, as it should, is that when you trace that line that starts with the pink and then turns into the blue all the way to the present time, it lands on me. My ancestors helped me get into college in some way. Goes back to that William Faulkner line, doesn't it? The past isn't even past. We're living in it. When you look at that farthest out generation, the one that's on the other side of the Emancipation Ribbon, there are 16 great-grandparents out there. In that generation of 16, five of them grew up with parents who had enslaved other people. Two of them were Confederate soldiers. Seven of them were kids or grandkids of Confederate soldiers. So we can see here that my family had quite a bit at stake in the Southern economy and way of life. Notably in my family, 
all the preachers and missionaries and teachers from any branch of my family tree happened to come directly from the generations that engaged in slavery. And I often wonder what that means. Was it that they were so wealthy that they could afford life pathways that required higher education? Sure, that's part of it. But I also wonder if there was some sense in engaging in this kind of community work that they were trying to make amends for actions of the past. We'll never know. I also wonder how long my ancestors would have continued to enslave people if they weren't forced to stop. Of course, I'd like to think that they would have stopped on their own volition, but I don't have any ground to stand on that. I mean, once they're already engaged in slavery, why would they stop? If you've ever read Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, she opens up that entire book with a reflection, a meditation, on this one image of Nazi Germany. It's this black and white photo of a crowd of white faces all saluting Hitler, except for one man who apparently was refusing to go along with the crowd. And Wilkerson uses this image to make the case that, that statistically, it takes a lot of people to carry an institution. And those people got to come from somewhere. We like to think that our ancestors would have been the one person in the crowd standing against the tide, not saluting. But statistically, numerically, in my family, that means that my ancestors weren't standing against the tide. They may have never stopped. In closing, one of the things that I think about is that when you read about trauma therapy, and that's what slavery is, no doubt about it, it was a horror beyond horror to the black folks who went through it. And it's also done damage to white folks, but I'm saving that story for another quilt. But when I think about trauma therapy, and I was reading this book recently called The Body Keeps the Score. You've probably seen it around. The psychologist who wrote it works with a lot of war vets who suffered PTSD and trauma from their time in the war. He says there's two things we need to think about when it comes to trauma therapy. Number one is notice that. And number two, what happens next? So in this talk today, I am noticing that in my family, folks who chose to engage in slavery set themselves and many generations to come up for a life of privilege, wealth, and access. But what happens next is this. These pieces in Southern White Amnesia, I'm making them knowing that I can never profit off of them, right? To, to make pieces exploring how my ancestors exploited black labor for their own financial gain, to sell those pieces for my financial gain just seems morally dubious at best. But that doesn't mean I don't want these quilts making some money. So here's my thinking. I will happily give them to somebody who is willing to fund, in this case, a scholarship with a nonprofit like the Thurgood Marshall College Fund, perhaps, or the United Negro College Fund, so that these systems that my family helped put into place years ago can begin, at least in the small singular way, begin to be dismantled. One of the names for this type of quilt in my mind at least, you know, so the body of work I call Southern White Amnesia, but the kind of quilt that this is, is a reparation quilt. And it's my hope that through the alchemy 
of inexpensive fabrics, labor, love, and intention that we're able to generate some small electric spark that will open real doors for somebody out there. That's my hope. That's why I work. Thank you so much for listening to this talk on the Silver Dollar Quilt. Wherever you are right now, listening to me, I hope that you're well. I hope that you're warm. I hope that you're peaceful, safe, and healthy. Take care, and we'll talk again soon.